It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 402 for July 20th, 2014. This week, with the second iteration of Creative Cloud, Adobe is working hard to convince users of its value, and it appears they're succeeding. Google Maps added some new features and redesigned the interface recently. Looks like an improvement to me. In short circuits, the FCC had to extend the comment period on net neutrality because their website blew up again. Intel's profits are up as the company appears to be learning how to deal with smaller devices. And Rupert Murdoch wanted Time Warner, but an $80 billion bid has been rejected. Let's call this mostly cloudy with a chance of Photoshop. Writing reviews of Adobe products sometimes brings Sisyphus to mind. Remember him? He was the ancient mythological king, forced to push a boulder up a hill, only to have it roll back down again. Now that's not to say that reviewing Adobe products is torture, in fact, just the opposite. It's more like every time I describe the amazing new features the developers have created, I turn around, look up, and see the top of the mountain has moved. It's now another thousand feet higher. So maybe it's like Sisyphus, except that it's a delight and not a discouragement at each cycle. So here we are with a 2014 version of Photoshop. The days are long gone when it would be possible to talk about some gigantic new feature. After all, there's only so much that an application such as Photoshop can do. The gigantic features seem to pretty much all have been identified and developed. What can be identified and developed now is a never-ending list of smaller features that individually might not seem like much until you realize just how dependent you've become on one of the new features once you've used it for a while, maybe three minutes or so. One overarching feature of Creative Cloud is typeface management. But let's consider that within the overall framework of Creative Cloud because it works throughout the applications. Although Adobe says that more people than expected have signed up for Creative Cloud, there is still no small amount of pushback from people who don't like the idea of renting software instead of selecting a perpetual license. Some people refer to that as owning the software, but that has never been the case. You are granted a license to use a given application either perpetually, as with Adobe Lightroom, or for a specific period, applications in the Adobe Creative Cloud suite. Whether you like or loathe the idea of renting software, it's clear that the rental method is in the ascendance. Developers have tried to make the Creative Cloud interface more useful. The Home tab, for example, shows what's happened recently. Applications you've installed or updated, typefaces you've added, and so forth. In many cases, additional links are provided with more information or even training. The Apps tab now shows which applications are installed and whether they're up to date. And a link below each application takes you to additional online training. The most significant changes to the interface are in the Assets tab, which now has three additional sub-tabs, Files, Fonts, and Market. The Files tab shows you a list of all the files you've downloaded from Adobe. 
The Fonts tab shows the typefaces you have downloaded, or in Adobe speak, synchronized. And the Market tab allows you to locate images or other materials that you can download or have downloaded. Clicking Manage Fonts takes you to the Adobe TypeKit interface. Finding the right typeface has been simplified greatly. If you know some part of the typeface's name, you can put it in the search box. Otherwise, click a few buttons and TypeKit will show you what matches. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a case in which I specified that I wanted a sans serif face that could be used on a website, is appropriate for blocks of text, not just headlines, is available in light, medium, and heavy weights, is a standard width face with normal X height, and has a medium amount of contrast between thick and thin lines. The result, three typefaces that exactly fit the requirements. It's worth pointing out that Typekit fonts are yours to use on the web and in print as long as your Creative Cloud membership is active. There are also some limitations on how many typefaces you can use. In the situation that I illustrate on the website, there's a limit of 100 typefaces for use on the desktop, and that would be used for printing. For websites, there's no limit on the number of faces used, but the total of all typefaces used may be served on no more than 500,000 page views per month. That's probably going to be enough for most people. If you need more, there are plans that range from $25 to $100 per year, and they provide significantly increased access. Overall, Adobe makes 4,200 typefaces available to Creative Cloud users. In the Market section of the Assets tab, you may find an image you'd like to use. Select it and choose Download. The file will now be on your computer. That's pretty easy. After downloading an image, you can load it into any Adobe application and modify it. Regardless of the potential advantages of a software rental system, some photographers all but went ballistic when Adobe announced the $50 per month Creative Cloud program. They resented being asked to spend $600 a year for a package that included tools they would never use. InDesigner for print and ebooks, Dreamweaver for websites, Audition for audio, and a plethora of applications for video. They also didn't want to spend the $20 a month, which was the price that Adobe selected initially for single applications. So now there's a $10 per month program that'll keep photographers up to date with Photoshop and Lightroom. The advantage of Creative Cloud is the continuous rolling series of updates that arrive automatically during the year. And at $120 per year, even hobbyists should be able to afford it. If $120 per year is too much, maybe it's time to find another business if you're a commercial photographer, or another hobby if you're an amateur. But let's get on to Photoshop CC 2014. When you open the program, you'll see a new splash screen, but after that, there's no large and obvious change visible. It's not that there haven't been any improvements, because there have been. There have been a lot. You just need to know where to look. But a few features have been removed, too. Because Apple won't support Flash, some Flash-based features are gone. These include the Mini Bridge, the Cooler Color Management Applet, and any third-party add-ons that depended on Flash. And if you have a Mac, the new version of Photoshop won't run on any version of the operating system earlier than 10.7.
The improvements and the additions far outweigh the dropped features. You get smarter smart guides, improved smart objects, access to thousands, literally thousands, of typefaces, some new motion blur effects, and enhanced content-aware features. And that's my short list. The smart guides have been around for a while. When you're dragging an object around, the guides show you when you've aligned the object with some other object. This is a handy feature. Before smart guides were developed, the alignment involved selecting multiple objects and using the align command, or you'd have to draw a bunch of guidelines that you could then use for alignment. Adobe found a way to improve smart guides, though. Now, if you drag a layer while pressing the Alt key on Windows or Option on Mac, you'll see a measurement guide that displays the distance between the original layer and the duplicate layer. This makes repetitive movements easier. If you have a group of objects that you want to space evenly, Photoshop can display measurement guides to show spacing between other objects that match the spacing between the selected object and its immediate neighbors. This qualifies as one of those improvements you didn't know you needed. But once you've seen it in action, you won't be able to imagine working without it. And if you should happen to need to find out where an object is, you can hold down the Command key on a Mac or Control on Windows while hovering outside the shape and Photoshop will display its distance to the canvas edge. The new font management system makes finding a missing typeface easy. Photoshop will warn you if you're opening a file that contains a reference to a typeface that isn't installed. That isn't new, but the process of finding and syncing or downloading the typeface is now nearly automatic. When you have an image with a sharply focused subject and a nicely out-of-focus background, you can use the new Focus Mask feature. This allows you to modify the foreground and background separately. That's a new feature, and one that the developers will undoubtedly refine over the next few years. But even in its first iteration, it is impressive. The mask that's applied automatically is an excellent starting point in most cases, and it requires only that you do a bit of refinement. Adobe provided an image of Jesse Boykins III. He's a musician, and if you want to learn more about him, you'll find a link to his website on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The image is a really good one to start with because it has a shallow depth of field. The artist already stands out from the foreground. But the new focus mask filter allows for some promising possibilities. So I used the new focus mask filter, and generally speaking, the results were excellent. But there were some parts of the artist's vest that weren't selected, and there's a little bit of a problem on his right shoulder. You'll see this on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And, of course, there's a fairly big problem around the hair. There is always a problem around hair when you're trying to select it. Selecting hair is one of the most difficult tasks any photo editor can ever try to perform. So then I used the Refine Edge function. And by painting an area around the hair with a new tool, I can tell Photoshop to take a closer look at what's been selected. The final result? Superb. Adobe had suggested modifying this image to create a monochrome background. I decided to create a background with a significant color shift and increased saturation instead of decreased saturation. You'll see the result on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I think that effect is a little too much. So then I added a layer mask that desaturates the top part of the image by leaving the bottom part of the image with the color shift and the increased saturation. Photoshop is all about layers, you know. There are adjustment layers, masking layers, layers with vector objects, layers with text. 
The most talented Photoshop users often create images with dozens and sometimes hundreds of layers, each adjusting just a small part of the image. At their simplest, smart objects are just layers that can be reused. A smart object can contain either a pixel-based image or a vector-based image. They can be embedded into an image or linked to an image. Linking is new. It allows changes to be made to the master object so that they will be updated throughout all files that use that object. And I described this a few weeks ago. And it's primarily a feature that commercial designers will be excited about. But if you're looking at filters, the blur gallery has been both expanded and improved. Today's lenses and cameras produce tack-sharp images, but sometimes you don't want an image that's tack-sharp. Maybe you'd like to convert a street scene so that it looks like a toy town, or maybe you want wheels to look like they're spinning. Perhaps you'd like to throw a background out of focus because it is so sharp that it detracts from the main subject. Those are all functions of the blur gallery. Applying the blur needs to be coupled with the proper use of layers because by default some of the blur effects affect the entire image. By using a mask you can precisely control which areas are blurred and by how much. Motion blur has been around for a while but now you can specify a blur path. And there's also a circular blur option. Let's say I have a picture of a horse-drawn buggy and the shutter speed on the camera was high enough that the buggy appeared to be stopped instead of moving. Actually, I do have a photograph just like that. You'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I started by applying circular blur to each of the wheels. For the wheels on the far side of the buggy, only part of the wheel is visible, of course, and therefore the circular rotation blur caused some parts of the buggy to blur. You don't want that. It's an easy fix, though. Because the blur effect is on its own layer. A layer mask can be used to remove the blur from the areas where it's not wanted. By the way, when you take a look at the after picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website, see if you can find the wheel that I didn't really do a very good job on. And if it takes you more than five seconds to find it, I probably did an adequate job. Adobe's content-aware features have been around for several versions, and the tools continue to become more robust with each succeeding iteration. This year's improvement takes color blending into account. Previously, the process could introduce a certain amount of visible color banding in areas where a content-aware feature had been used. Now, the feature much more accurately patches the area you want to have patched, while making the patch itself invisible by accurately blending colors around the edges of the patch. I had an image of a sky. I thought it was a nice image, except for one thing. There was this big power line going through it. Well, it's an image that I might want to use for something someday. So I need to get rid of that power line. The first step to take with content-aware fill involves duplicating the layer because the change is destructive. It's important to preserve that original image because someday you might want to include the content the process is going to remove. I can't think of any good reason why I'd want that power line ever, but you never know. You might wonder why I selected this image. Well, I picked it as a good example because I knew that the content-aware fill would have no trouble at all with the image where the power line is in front of the cloud. The problem would be in the upper right corner where there's some cloud, some sky, some cloud again, some more sky, and the power line's in front of all of it. Things are moving back and forth. This would have been a problem previously. So I made sure that I selected color adaptation and told content-aware fill to go ahead. Until now, I would have needed to repair the transition area between the cloud and the sky, but the addition of color adaptation creates an invisible patch. 
I know where the power line was, and even looking at a full-size copy of the image on screen, I can't see any sign of manipulation. Bottom line for Photoshop CC 2014 is five cats. Wowee! That's kind of a reasonable assessment of what went through my mind several times as I worked with Photoshop CC 2014. Although this was a kind of a long review, there are a lot of big features I didn't even mention. Perspective warp, for example. You won't find it in this review, and it's not missing because it's not a worthwhile feature. Perspective warp is yet another tool that can be used after the fact to improve an image that came out of your camera. It's a highly specialized tool, though, a complex tool. And besides, I couldn't find an image that would have demonstrated what it does. If you're interested in learning more about Perspective Warp, Adobe has written an article about it. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you want more information on the latest version of Photoshop, there is, of course, a link to the Adobe website. I noticed a while ago that Google had made some changes to the interface for Google Maps, so this week I sat down and looked at the changes. Besides the interface, there's some improved functionality. I think it's worth a few minutes to explore that new interface. There is an option, if you don't like the new interface, to go back to the older one. But examine what's new, and you probably won't want to go back. Let's say you're planning a trip to Chicago and you want to check out the museums that are there. In this case, I typed in Museums in Chicago. Google Maps returned a list that included the Museum of Science and Industry, the Chicago History Museum, and the International Museum of Surgical Science. I'd never heard of that one. You can click on any of the museums in the list or select any of the large number of red icons. Chicago has a lot of museums. Click on one of the red icons. Well, I decided to take a look at the Shedd Aquarium. In part, I decided to do that because one of the later Harry Dresden books happened to have been set there. The display offered an enormous amount of information in a very concise form. I could see the address and the hours of operation, links to directions and the museum's website, and there was also a phone number, a photo tour, only the larger museums are going to have that, there was, of course, Google's regular Street View option, a bunch of photos of the area, and more than 400 reviews. Street View hasn't changed much. As usual, you can pan the camera around, move it forward or back along the Google Cars path. I found the slideshow to be pretty interesting, though. It gives you an understanding of what's in the museum, how large it is, and what you'll see when you're there. This is really good information if you're planning a visit. And there are lots of images in and around the area. Google Maps provides thumbnails of the various images at the bottom of the screen, so you can click only those that you are interested in seeing, or find interesting, to see a larger view. Of course, Google Maps will tell you how to get to Shedd Aquarium from wherever you are. I selected Broad and High in downtown Columbus. It's about a six-hour drive, according to Google. And you have access to all of the turn-by-turn -turn directions that'll guide you to the Shedd Aquarium. You can do that so you don't accidentally park in the adjacent field museum. But maybe you'd prefer to walk. 
Well, Google seemed a little doubtful that I would want to walk from Broad and High in Columbus to the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. I could do that, Google told me, in 101 hours, and they even gave me a route that would have worked. I think they're being a little optimistic about the time, though. Or I could save time and go by bicycle. That would be just 31 hours. Still kind of optimistic by my standards. And you can see a terrain map, which includes a few ups and downs, followed by a steep drop as you approach the lake in Chicago. Google's satellite view is available for most areas, too. These are the same images that Google Earth uses, so they're typically two to three years old. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I have an aerial view of Greenfield Village. That's another museum, but it's in Detroit. And you can zoom in to get a better look at the neighborhood. And because Greenfield Village has its own roads, you can even see street views within the museum. Google Maps can help you travel from here to there, but it's also a worthwhile resource if you just want to spend some time looking around the country, or much of the world. In short circuits, the FCC seems to have gotten an earful, but I wonder if they're listening. When the Federal Communications Commission asks for public comment on an issue, it typically receives a few dozen or maybe several hundred messages. Former cable company lobbyist Tom Wheeler, who is now the chairman of the FCC, has proposed a method that would allow broadband providers to create a fast lane for those who want to pay more. This has not been well received so far, and the FCC has received nearly 800,000 comments. By comparison, the 2004 Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction generated about twice the number of messages to the FCC, but in general, the messages are measured in dozens or hundreds. So to say that this is a larger number of comments than usual is the equivalent of saying the Atlantic Ocean is damp. Wheeler's deal would be of great benefit to companies such as Comcast and Time Warner. Many analysts feel the proposal would hamper competition, provide slower service for most users, and increase prices that are already among the highest in the world. The proposed new rule written by Wheeler and pushed forward despite opposition from other members of the commission would allow broadband providers to charge companies such as Netflix more to provide a fast lane for their streaming video. This is a semantic trap. Wheeler says he would never allow a slow lane, but the simple act of creating a fast lane relegates everything else to the de facto slow lane. And the extra costs incurred by the companies who want to use the fast lane? Oh, they're going to be passed on to consumers, of course. Initially, the deadline for comments was this past Tuesday, but the FCC extended that to Friday because the agency's website crashed as a result of so many people attempting to comment at the last minute. Follow-up comments may be provided until September 10th. Clearly, many of the commenters are angry with the treatment they receive from phone and cable companies. The companies have largely earned that ire, 
Consider the incident described in a recent report on National Public Radio that features the last eight minutes of an 18-minute phone call between a person who simply wanted to cancel his Comcast service and a Comcast customer service representative. There's a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The FCC will finalize its decision late this year or early in 2015, and then the next set of legal challenges can begin. It was a suit by Verizon that ended in a court decision causing the existing rules to be discarded. For a while, Intel looked like it was going to go the way of Detroit's big iron, as computer manufacturers increasingly shifted manufacturing to follow consumer trends that favored smaller devices using far less power than desktop systems. Intel had been the undisputed champion of high-power CPUs that are used in desktop and some notebook systems, but Intel's processors are rarely found in small devices. Intel is still the largest chip maker in the world. To remain in that position, the company is going to need to figure out how to make CPUs for smaller devices, and after several bad quarters, Intel seems to be working out some of the details. There's still a market for large, powerful machines, and that market is large. Cloud-based servers need powerful CPUs. So do applications such as computer-assisted drawing, used by architects, and photo or video editing. But Intel needs to work its way into being a supplier of parts for phones, handheld devices, and wearable computers. Comcast wants to buy Time Warner and is expected to be allowed to do so. This week, though, Rupert Murdoch bid $80 billion for Time Warner and HBO. Time Warner rejected the bid, but that's not that. Don't write off the owner of Fox News and the Wall Street Journal just yet. Murdoch says he wants Time Warner, so higher bids may be in the offing. This probably has caused some consternation to Comcast. Fox Time would be a huge cable and internet operation. HBO, Fox Broadcasting, Warner Brothers, and 20th Century Fox. Billions of dollars used to be the purview of the federal government, but now about 30 people in the world have the kind of money that most governments can only dream of. Fox had reportedly been thinking about buying Scripps earlier, which owns Home and Garden TV, the Food Network, and Univision. Eventually, about three people in the world are going to own everything.
Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.